Please take your Bible one final time to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. We've been in this chapter longer than any other chapter to this point in our study of Luke. But today is our final week in Luke 9. I am here to persuade you this morning to follow Jesus, the risen Jesus, crucified, buried, and risen Jesus, but to do so fully aware of what you are getting yourself into if you choose to follow him with your life. I'm going to read Luke chapter 9 this morning, verses 57 to 62, the end of Luke 9. As they, Jesus and his disciples, were going along the road, someone said to him, that's Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When we think of the American Revolutionary War fought on our very own continent here, we often think of soldiers who were heroes, and rightly so. Many of them were fighting for their own independence and for freedoms that we continue to enjoy to this moment. But in David McCullough's uh, best-selling story of uh, the heart of that war called 1776, he describes the fact that that wasn't always the case. Not everyone was bold and willing to give their lives for their country, for the freedoms that we enjoy. This, This is also the story, the Revolutionary War is also the story of countless soldiers who betrayed their country, who betrayed their fellow soldiers, and deserted the army. And so let me read this brief portion, and this is simply a snapshot or just a snippet of one of many that I could have chosen from this book to describe uh, what was happening often during that war. American soldiers, McCullough writes, were deserting as if leaving a sinking ship, 30 or 40 at a time, many defecting to the enemy. Disobedience and theft were epidemic. It was far from an army of heroes only. Then he quotes one of the generals named Joseph Reed. He says, A spirit of desertion, cowardice, plunder, and shrinking from duty when attended with fatigue or danger prevailed but too generally, wrote Joseph Reed, who had become so demoralized that even he was on the verge of quitting. One of the generals, one of the bravest soldiers is willing to quit because of how bad it had gotten. And again, I could, I could flip left or right in that book and find other passages that say the same thing, just from a different part of the camp, from a different part of the war, on a different day. But essentially, you had soldiers, left and right, realizing it was better just to go home than to keep fighting in such putrid conditions. And perhaps in some cases, in many cases, it was better even to fight for the British army than to keep on enduring the conditions they were in on the battlefield. Why would you give up like that? Why would you go over to the enemy after you fought so hard and so long 
because of the human reality that you feel probably every single day that it's easier, uh, that, that our hearts are conditioned to do what is easy. Our hearts are conditioned to do what's easy. And maybe this morning you experienced that just when your alarm went off and you just didn't want to get up at the time that your alarm was telling you it was time to get up. Maybe this is what keeps you from going to the gym or from taking a walk or from uh, fixing your car or any number of other problems. Our hearts are conditioned to do what is easy and to run away from what is hard. But this passage before us this morning, Luke chapter 9, 57 to 62, tells us that those who follow Jesus must radically reorient their priorities. If you're going to follow Jesus, and we pray that you do, that you would follow him from now till the end of your life. But if you're going to do that, you will need to radically reorient your priorities. That's what this passage tells us. In this small text, Jesus has conversations with three prospective disciples. We would call them today non-Christians. Okay? The people he's talking to are people who are very interested in what Jesus is doing and in what Jesus is saying, but they're still just in that feel-it-out stage. They haven't decided whether they're willing to go all in yet or not. And Jesus is making sure that before these people commit to following him, they know what they're getting themselves into. And as you read along with me a moment ago, perhaps you observed with me that two of these people volunteered their services. Oh, Jesus, I want to follow you. And in a third case, Jesus said, you follow me. It was as if he looked at someone in the eye and said, you You look like you would be willing to follow me. But in all three cases, there was a response or there was a statement that the other person made to Jesus exposing perhaps some hesitancy. Like, sounds good. I I like what, you know, the rewards sound like, but I'm just needing to think this through a little bit further before I decide to follow Jesus. So this passage is telling us to weigh your priorities, to count the cost, to be aware of what you're getting yourself into ahead of time. This passage tells us that those who follow Jesus must be willing to give up comfort. That's verses 57 to 58 where we read of Jesus responding to this man who says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, you know, animals are more comfortable than I am. Foxes have holes they can climb themselves into at night where they hide themselves, where they stay warm. Birds have nests. In fact, there's a nest right on the other side of this wall here, between those windows, up behind a gutter. So it's not hard for birds to find a place for them to settle in and even uh, you know, lay their eggs and watch their babies grow and then eventually watch their babies fly away. Birds have nests. Foxes have holes. And Jesus says the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Why is that? Well, if you look back to the previous passage that we looked at last week, In verse 51, the days drew near for him to be taken up, and in doing so he set his face, and by taken up it is referring to his ascension, so after he is crucified, buried, and risen, and then taken up to heaven as he is at the end of this book and the beginning of Acts. And he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and so then he sent messengers ahead of him to go on through uh, Samaria and and uh, one of the villages of the Samaritans to make preparations, which we discussed basically means find a place for us to eat and sleep. And the Samaritans said, no thanks. You're going to Jerusalem. We want nothing to do with you, which was common for them to respond that way. 
and for Jews often to respond in, in like form themselves toward the Samaritans. The people did not receive him, verse 53 said, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. That's why Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. It was because he was going to Jerusalem so that he could lay down his life for his sheep, for us, those who follow Jesus in faith and repentance. But Jesus is on this road to die. He's on the road to Jerusalem where he will lay down his life. And in doing so, he's being rejected. And that's why he has nowhere to lay down his head so that even animals have more comfort than he did. And so this begs the question then, if he's being rejected for what he is going to do, are you willing to be rejected for following him? Are you willing to have people turn away from you and call you a fool and say that you are wasting your life? Perhaps people you love saying that to you. But he had nowhere to lay his head because of his mission. He was heading to Jerusalem to lay down his life. And so he has nowhere to lay down his head, and he wants his followers to be aware that that's what you're going to likely endure as well if you choose to follow Jesus. It's really fascinating how in American culture particularly, and now we have done a wonderful job of exporting the prosperity gospel. It has uh, developed, especially here, uh, this, this idea that we love God's gifts more than we love God. We want what Jesus offers us more than we want Jesus. We want the pleasures of life more than we desperately realize the need for forgiveness of sins. And so this is no uh, north versus south problem. This isn't like, well, the, the southern states are filled with the prosperity gospel, but up here we're immune to this. No one is immune to the pole of the prosperity gospel, the desire to want what God offers, but not really want God himself, not really want the cost of discipleship. And so I would encourage you to fight hard against this call that the prosperity gospel puts on us and uh, appeals to us with of, if you follow Jesus, you'll have everything you want. You'll have all your problems taken away. Uh, I saw a billboard when we lived in Alabama that said, got drugs, get Jesus. I just thought, man, it's a little more complicated than that. Like, I appreciate the sentiment. Yes, we want people to turn to Christ. But it sounds like you're saying, you've got a problem, and you're kind of tired of it. So just add a little layer of Jesus, and you will be all set. It's just not that simple. Just not that easy. When Jesus says here that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, he's referring, as I've pointed out numerous times to this point in Luke, he's referring to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And what's remarkable about that passage where it says that the Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven, and what you see in that vision that Daniel saw in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 especially, is the kingdom being delivered over to the Son of Man, who is himself Jesus. And so what this is doing is giving us a picture of the future, of what Jesus himself was going to experience after he ascended to heaven. So in the future, he's going to receive the whole kingdom And right now, he doesn't even know where he's going to sleep tonight. That's an amazing paradox and contrast. Those who follow Jesus must be willing to give up their comfort. And certainly, we want to be clear that not all comfort is bad. It's not wrong to have a nice couch or a comfortable mattress to lay your head down on at night. But we need to realize that following Jesus is often very difficult and is often very costly 
Perhaps you've read uh, John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, in which he tells a story about uh, an American couple who retired to Florida so that they could uh, live on a yacht and collect seashells. And John Piper envisions what they're going to have to say when they give account for their lives at the end of, of their lives, and he envisions them holding up their seashells and saying, look, Lord, my shells. What's God going to say about that? Is God going to say, yeah, you really used your life well. You really sacrificed for the kingdom there. Thanks for bringing me these lovely seashells. No, that is not impressive to the God who makes seashells. That's a waste of your life. Christian, don't waste your life living for the comforts that this world provides. Follow Jesus, and in doing so, be willing to give up all your comfort. Verses 59 to 60 gives us a second snapshot of these conversations that Jesus was having along this road on the way to Jerusalem. Those who follow Jesus must be willing to give up family. That doesn't sit well with people either. Not that being willing to give up comfort does, but many people would say, well, I can give up a nice place to sleep as long as I still have my family. And Jesus would say, sometimes following me means that you have to say so long to your family because they get in the way of following Jesus. I don't just mean that it can be inconvenient to have to take care of your children or something. I mean like you have people who tell you, don't go to Bible college. You're wasting your life. You're smart enough to get into Yale. Why would you go to a place where they're going to teach you the Bible so much? Invest in something that's really going to matter. Perhaps you have children who are mad at you because you don't give them everything they want. And what I say to my children occasionally, I try not to say it too often, is I don't care if you don't like me. That's not my job to make you like me. I hope you do. Like, please laugh at my dad jokes. But if you don't, it's okay as long as you follow Jesus. That's what I'm concerned about. And hopefully after you've started doing that, you'll start liking me again. But if not, it's okay. Just follow Jesus. That's the priority. But sometimes you also have to leave parents or you perhaps have to leave your siblings behind and say, look, you may never understand what I'm doing, but I'm telling you that it is worth it to follow Jesus because of who he is and what he has done. So where we see this in verses 59 and 60 is when Jesus approaches another person and says, follow me, which is like what he said to his very disciples, the very 12 who are following him along this road. But the man responds, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Sounds like a legitimate excuse, legitimate request. Of course, go take care of your pressing needs. But we need to step back a little bit. First of all, we want to acknowledge it is our responsibility to honor our father and mother. And one of the ways we do that in our culture is by taking care of them to the very end of their lives, as best as we're able to. And we realize that you know that the advent of, of nursing homes and, and Memory care homes and things are a great blessing and a wonderful way for us to do this, to take care of our, of our family members. But, but uh, one of the ways we try to honor our father and mother is by giving them a proper funeral or a proper burial, we could say. And that's what this person is asking Jesus for permission to go do. Look, I want to follow you. Just let me go take care of this urgent matter and then I'll jump on this. And Jesus, while obviously expecting that people will honor their father and mother in obedience to the fifth commandment, uh, he also would say, no, there are things that are more pressing. 
there are, thing, there are other people who are just as qualified as you are to go bury your father and mother, but you are responsible for proclaiming the gospel. That's what verse 60 says. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, if you're going to follow me, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This phrase, leave the dead to bury their own dead, could make you really scratch your head. So don't scratch too hard, but just ask the question, who are the dead who are supposed to go bury their own dead? And I think that this is essentially Jesus using a play on words. You have the spiritually dead taking care of those who are physically dead, those who have taken their last breath and are now in a casket. Let the people who have other priorities take care of burying the dead. And that should raise the question then of, well, who are spiritually dead? Who are the spiritually dead people in the world today? And what we need to remember is that the New Testament regularly teaches us that we are all spiritually dead until God himself makes us alive. You were born dead before God. So what can a dead person do? Absolutely nothing. Which is why we so desperately need a biblical understanding of the doctrine of conversion. That we are made spiritually alive. We are regenerated when we put our faith and hope in Jesus alone. That's the doctrine of conversion, that you become spiritually alive. That's called regeneration. The Holy Spirit regenerates you, gives you life. He makes dead people into living people. And we desperately as Christians need to re, um, recalibrate our minds to thinking about regeneration and conversion the way that the Bible does, the way that the Lord himself does. So the spiritually dead are those who are yet without Christ. And Jesus isn't saying those people are less important. He's simply saying they have temporal priorities. You should have eternal priorities, those that go beyond this life, those that maybe other people aren't going to understand. And they're going to wish that you were near them more frequently. You know, maybe when you, when you move to the mission field, you're not going to be able to be home for Easter and Thanksgiving and Christmas and whatever other holiday, your birthday, whatever other holiday is important to you and your family. Maybe you're not going to be there for that, and maybe that's going to be hard for you and for your family. But you would say, you know what, I have eternal priorities. Jesus says, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Did you know that there are people who live right behind our church building and right next to our church building, hopefully two doors down, and uh, (laughs) I live one door down, for those that didn't know, and those right across the street, like the house that I can see right now, if their hope's not in Jesus, they're the people who need to hear the kingdom of God, who need to be converted, who need to be made spiritually alive. And we can't do that. Your job isn't to save people, but your job is to tell people the truth. And the Holy Spirit is the one who saves people, who brings people spiritual life. So let those who are spiritually dead, who have temporal priorities, deal with temporal matters. And you who have spiritual priorities, deal with spiritual matters. Go and proclaim the kingdom. And that sounds a lot like what Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended at the end of the book of Matthew, for instance, where he says, go and make disciples. It's the same thing. Go make disciples. Go proclaim the kingdom. Synonymous terms saying, go do what is eternally significant, eternally fruitful. 
And how do we do that as individuals and as a church family? We do that by walking across the street and telling those people we love them, Happy Easter, here's a gift for you. We hope you'll come and visit our church sometime. We just want to tell you that we love you because Jesus loves us. So you evangelize. You disciple other Christians so that they will then evangelize. You participate in planting churches. You give toward missions through the Annie Armstrong offering or through many other means. You go as a missionary. There are many Christians who are well-equipped to go to the mission field and have decided it's not worth it because if I do that, how am I ever going to save up enough for retirement? I don't know the answer to that question. Talk to the missions agencies about that part of it. But I would ask, a thousand years from now, are you going to be asking or saying, I really wish I had more saved up for retirement? You may not be thinking that 50 years from now. So we proclaim the kingdom by engaging in compassionate and persuasive evangelism and discipleship and church planting and missions. You know, perhaps you've sung the song, maybe many times, I have decided to follow Jesus. It's a good song. In other cultures, they add a verse that we don't really sing here. And uh, perhaps you've, you've uh, heard this verse or heard people talk about it, but uh, one of our missionaries, Tim Cassie, we watched one of his videos in Sunday school a few weeks ago. He reports on this in several of those videos that in other cultures, they often have a verse that says something like, and of course it's going to vary from culture to culture, if I, I have it written down here because I knew I was going to forget it, if I lose my life or I'm thrown in prison, no turning back, no turning back. Instead of, I have decided to follow Jesus, the, the next verse is, if I, if I lose my life or I'm thrown in prison, no turning back. Is that your testimony? Are you willing to say, I'm willing to give it all? Lay it all out on the mission field. Lay it all out in the Chicago mission field for the sake of the kingdom of God. And to many of our non-Christian friends, this may seem super extreme. And I understand that. So if you're here today and, and you're not yet a follower of Christ and you're even evaluating whether you want to even walk down this road, whether you want to keep uh, learning more about Christ and reading the Bible and reading books about Jesus so you can learn more about Him and listening to sermons or podcasts or reading articles or anything like that so you can know, do I really want to follow Jesus? Is this really worth it? It may seem extreme to give up comfort and to give up family relationships. I mean, man, we, we share blood. Like, these are my people. And Jesus is saying, I have to leave them? That seems extreme. And it perhaps would seem extreme, except that Jesus himself was willing to leave his family. He was even willing to leave heaven, to come down to earth, to be born in a place where animals eat and sleep and live so that he could walk the long, dusty, hard road to Jerusalem and lay his life down for his sheep and then be buried in a cold and borrowed tomb and then rise again and ascend to heaven. And so perhaps it's extreme. Perhaps it seems like too much. The Bible tells you otherwise, and we would urge you to believe the the narrative of the Bible rather than the narrative that the world throws out there for you, that it's better to have security and money and family. And the Bible tells you a different story. It is better to have Jesus himself than to have any of these priorities. 
Those who follow Jesus must be willing to give up their comfort. Those who follow Jesus must be willing to give up their very family. And third, in verses 61 and 62, those who follow Jesus must be willing to give up past success and future plans. Past success and future plans. Another, a third person comes up to Jesus, and in this case, he's the second one who says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus, in an agrarian society, recognizing that many of these people are people who go out and plow fields, said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So don't go out and say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then you start looking back and saying, boy, that life was sweet. Kind of like Lot's wife in the book of Genesis. Or kind of like Paul in Philippians 3 where he said, I am going to follow Christ even though I could of all people boasted about my past. Let me just read this, this brief section from Philippians. You don't need to turn there, but you can jot it down if you'd like. It's Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Let me back up to verse 12 and read through verse 14. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had, has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider what I have, uh, do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I forget what's behind and I strain toward what's ahead. What Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.7 is, I've finished my course. In other words, I have been in it for the long haul. And now here, Jesus is urging us to do the same thing. To not say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus, but just let me take a look back and look at my past accomplishments or my past training or my my past successes and you get distracted from, from your current mission. So don't just look back. You're willing to give up your future plans as well. You're willing to say, you know, I, I don't know where this path's going to lead. It may not be comfortable, but following Jesus is this important. It could be easy to assume that by giving up these three priorities of comfort and family, friends, accomplishments, that in some way we can earn God's favor and in some way achieve or enhance a deeper level of salvation. And that is simply a lie straight from the pit of hell. Maybe you could say, I've lived a really moral life. Well, when you read the book of Luke to this point, even just through nine chapters, who are the people who find it harder to follow Jesus? The people who have been living profligate lives, throwing their lives away even for the temporal pleasures of the world? Or the people who have their lives in order? The Pharisees, people like that, the scribes people who gave themselves to studying God's law. Who had it harder to follow Jesus? Those who had their lives together did. Those who lived in the mess of life realized, boy, I really need Jesus. I'm going to follow him all the way. But those who had their lives together were like, I don't need that. I am already just fine. Thank you very much. And those were the people who crucified Jesus publicly for what they consider to be his sin of calling himself the Son of God. So we do not earn God's favor in some way by laying down our lives for Christ. This is simply what is natural for those who realize how much they have been saved from. 
a brother named Andy Davis, who will be speaking here this fall in September, pastor in North Carolina, uh, wrote in a book I read recently about someone checking into a hotel. And uh, just imagine with me somebody who's checking into, you know, say the Holiday Inn just around the corner here, and they get in there, and they're going to stay there one night. And let's say the, the wife, who's usually more attuned to these things, says, boy, I just really don't like the curtains in here. I'm going to run out to Ikea and get some new curtains. And boy, this, this mattress just is not comfortable. I'm going to run out to the store and buy a new mattress. And you think, you're going to stay there one night. Deal with it. Why are you trying to make your, your one-night stay that comfortable? That, that is why they have hotels that are like $700 a night, if you're looking for that kind of comfort. But if, you're just passing through here. You're here for one night. Why would you give so much attention to making something that's not going to last more beautiful? But this is exactly what we do with our lives. I'm going to make my life as comfortable as I possibly can for as long as I can possibly make it comfortable. But the message of the New Testament of the Bible is that we are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are sojourners passing through this world, following Jesus wherever He will take us. And we may come to the end of our lives and say, boy, that was difficult. But hopefully we'll also say, that was worth it because Jesus himself is worth it to lay down the comforts of this world. Follow Jesus by his grace, by radically reorienting your priorities. Let's close in prayer together. Lord, give us grace, we pray, on this Easter Sunday to not waste our time making this life as pleasant as possible, so much so that we end up forgetting that this life is short, that it is but a moment, that we are here for a moment and then we vanish away like a breath of air. So fill us with a vision of the glory of Christ, of His kindness toward us in laying down His life and then being buried and rising again. And in so doing, compel us to follow you wherever you would have us go. In Christ's name, amen.